I'm Melanie Sayward and you are tuning in to The Pink Elephant. Hey again and welcome to The Pink Elephant Podcast where we explore the most undiscussed issue in the body of Christ. That despite all we know, it can feel like there is something missing in our faith. Today I want to delve into another topic that is mentioned frequently throughout scripture, but I have not nearly heard that much about. That subject is humility and pride. We really need to talk about both of these concepts together because they have a relationship of sorts. You might describe the relationship between these two concepts as a scale in which each sits at either end of each other. At any given time, we all sit somewhere on this scale. Humility is incredibly important. In the passage in Philippians 2, where we are being encouraged to be like Christ and imitate him, it is specifically his humility that we are being encouraged to emulate. It is an inherent trait of our God, and pride is actually an inherent trait of the enemy. You may notice as we talk about pride that the behaviors typical of this mindset sound awfully familiar. That's right. It's because when we are proud, we are basically mimicking the enemy. And so on that basis, I think it's critical that we talk about this rather undiscussed issue that absolutely affects the depth and meaning we can experience from our faith. So we may as well jump straight in. What is pride? Pride is the belief that you are superior. It is when you have perceived your status amongst your neighbors and or God as better, more valuable, more important, and you will act as though you don't need God and people are merely objects in service to your desires being actualized. Alternatively, humility is having an accurate perspective of your status amongst your neighbors and God. Humility would have you see yourself as an equal to all others, even if you are positionally greater is in you have more responsibility. So like, for example, a leader, it will still have you perceive your status with people as equal. And when it comes to God, you will perceive your status as being completely dependent on him for all things. There is this two directional nature to humility and pride that's worth noting. It affects your relationship with God and also your relationship with your fellow man, although not necessarily equally so. You know, on the surface, it may not seem like this is such a big deal, but it is when you see each mindset in practice that the staggering differences are observed. So starting with pride, a proud person will display the following behaviors based on scripture and observation. Number one, people who are proud often believe they are special. Now, let me just say that we are all unique and that in essence makes us special But with pride, being special also means being more important and more special, I guess, and more valuable than everyone else. Proud people very rarely recognize others as special. And if they do, it is usually only to affirm people who remind themselves of them. I'm always a little bit weary when the leadership in any church or organization is filled with replicas of the leader, because diversity in this instance expresses the leader's humility and willingness to deal with difference. Number two, proud people treat underlings poorly. Really, they will treat anyone whom they don't need to please poorly which is why the health and sanity of middle management is often a better indicator of the overall health of a company or church than, say, profit margins or attendance. Number three, proud people treat other people as opportunities. 
For proud people, they often see relationships as their opportunity to gain something for themselves. They might see a partner as a means for pleasure rather than mutual love and care. They see a child as a means to reflect the image they desire and will control them to obtain this. They see friendships as networking opportunities. At the core of it, they don't value people besides what they can gain from them. Number four, proud people can't be disagreed with. This is a really significant one and anywhere you see a major leadership fall, you will probably find this point lurking well before the leadership fall happened. To a proud person, they are always right and they have very little concern for whether you agree or disagree with them. Number five, proud people don't apologize. For a proud person, apologizing is the hardest thing to do. They would rather quit, they'd rather leave, pretend it never happened, or do pretty much anything other than apologize. This is because admitting that they were at fault for something is the opposite of what a proud person wants to do. In fact, when they are inevitably made to apologize at some point, they will word it so delicately that they aren't really apologizing at all. You've heard it before, you know, they'll say things like, I'm sorry that you feel that way, or I'm sorry, but it's a strategic ploy to do as they are told without ever having to take responsibility. Number six, proud people boast about how special they are. I've just finished saying that proud people don't want to take responsibility for mistakes, but they do have a way of taking all responsibility and credit for when things go well. They are able to somehow wield the situation they've gone through to demonstrate themselves as the hero or special somehow. You know, like when a company is improving, it's because of something they did. It's because of their strategy. Now, sometimes it really is. Not always, of course, but sometimes. But it's the frequency to which they are willing to parade these thoughts that also indicates pride. Any opportunity they can find to steal the glory for a good thing, they will which is really unfortunate in the Christian world where we are supposed to be giving God the glory. And lastly, they are entitled. This is a trait that we should all really be watching for in ourselves because it is a sneaky one. Proud people believe that the world owes them something or they believe they deserve something extra. So in a leadership setting, I can't think of a more detrimental trait. If a leader concludes that because of how superior and great they are, that they really deserve to be treated superior, it leads to all sorts of problems. In my own leadership journey, I have always made a concerted effort to read everything I can about the major falls of leaders. I know it kind of sounds a little bit weird. It's not for gossip. It's not for cynicism or judgment. I just think that when it happens to one person, if there is a possibility that we can understand what precipitated it, we might be able to learn and teach something to all leaders, you know, because ultimately we want to avoid it. So yes, I have read every report about pretty much every leader that has fallen to sin's temptations to understand what other factors were at play. And the one thing that stands out to me is entitlement. Sometimes the reason a leader would participate in sin is because they believed they deserved to have a little side pleasure because of everything they were doing for the church and the responsibility that nobody else can understand. They believed they were special and that it gave them some extra entitlements that others really shouldn't have. 
Now, it sounds really messed up, right? But the devil is cunning. We aren't talking about people who have had significant mental health issues. We're just talking about people who probably became a little narcissistic and decided that they deserve something more. There are many other ways this entitlement can rear its ugly head. Even when it comes to hardship, I myself have been guilty of thinking that I don't deserve hard times. But why would I be the exception? Everybody has hardship. Why did I think I was so special that I should somehow be the exception to the rule? You know, the most important thing you need to know about pride, and it's certainly the scariest, is that pride is blinding. Proud people have no idea that they are proud. There are people who go out and do awful things every day. Some of them have a psychological problem and they need treatment, but still there are others that just don't see a problem with what they are doing. It is scary to me that there are parts of our brain that can block out reality and silence those other parts of our brains that concern ourselves with others, all because of pride. And it happens every day. You know, this is a little bit of a side note, but I get a little confused about the overly positive, does it bring life kind of vibe that gets regurgitated in churches sometimes. Because whilst we know there are a lot of people out there that just really feel insecure and are just trying to do the best they can and they really just need some encouragement, in my experience, there are bucket loads of proud people in church who are very happy to hear about how awesome they are and never be called to account or convicted for their own harmful, self-centered behaviors. Again, with the introduction of social media, the tendency to be narcissistic and self-absorbed has definitely increased. So why would we think that stroking egos is the solution to that? Their pride is exactly what causes them to resist God and his invitations to growth. Am I the only one that thinks this is a strange approach to spiritually blind people? All right, let's talk about something more positive. Let's talk about humility. Okay, these are some of the traits that you will see with people who are humble. Number one, humble people see themselves as equals. As the Bible says in Romans 12 verse 3, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. This verse demonstrates well the heart of a humble person. They don't see themselves as superior to others. They have an honest judgment. They may know they are special, but this is seen in terms of their uniqueness rather than superiority. What this means is that they won't expect to be treated better than everyone else. Even when they are struggling, they accept help because thinking that you don't need help when everybody else in the world needs help at some point is actually a symptom of thinking more highly of yourself than you ought. They don't adopt a victim mindset either that tells them that their needs are more important than others because, strangely, a victim mindset can actually cause someone to become proud too. In fact, it can even mask pride. See, thinking that your needs are more important than others is still thinking of yourself as more highly than you ought when we are all equals. On the flip side, being humble is also not thinking of yourself as less than others. The verse says, think of yourself with sober judgment, which basically means have an honest opinion of yourself. In Christian community, and from my observations, this is probably more the case in previous generations, we've often perceived humility as looking like someone who is constantly giving without little consideration for themselves and their own needs. But actually, 
that's not humility. That's more likely to be a mask for someone's own self-worth issues. Being humble is not serving others because you're not good enough. It's serving others because they are good enough. All right, number two, humble people aren't phased by status and position. The drive for position and status can come from many factors, but none of them are good. It could be significance or power or validation. Again, I'm talking about that incessant drive for status and position, right? The Bible would probably call it selfish ambition. It's the kind of ambition that has nothing to do with service and love. Well, humble people aren't really phased by that. They do what they want to, or in the case of Christians, feel led to, regardless of what everybody else is doing. They aren't concerned with what their attire says about them or what their wealth communicates because they aren't really concerned with how they are perceived by others. You know, image consciousness is not at all a typical trait of a humble person. They do what they do. Sometimes it doesn't even seem like they are really aware of what others are doing because they're so consumed with what is fueling them. My father is seriously one of the humblest people around. Yeah, I would actually find it really hard to think of anyone else who would come close to him in humility, except for maybe some of those older Christian ladies that you meet in church, right? But, I mean, he's not even a Christian, so it's just crazy. Anyway, throughout the course of his life, he's had so many people try to compete with him, you know, in that keep with the Joneses kind of way. You know, my dad goes and builds a house, so then they build a house. My dad gets a new car, so then they get a new car. Now, he is an inspiring person, but inevitably he has sometimes inspired jealousy in others just because of how gifted he is and how free he is from the opinions of others but he seriously has no idea half the time that people are even copying him because he's just looking to the next thing he wants to do. He has definitely had some prominent roles in life too, but he's never set out for it. He just is content with doing what he's doing and people have rewarded him for that. He's gone through some hard times as well and others have known it, but he's always more concerned about how it's affecting us, his family, than how it makes him look. Humble people aren't phased by status or position. They're not worried about what other people are thinking about everything that they are going through, whether it is good or bad. All right, number three, humble people are respectful. A humble person recognises that every person has free will and autonomy. Respect indicates our level of comprehension of God making us in his image. Yeah, that's right. That's actually what respect shows us. Every time we disrespect another person, we are essentially saying that we don't understand the image of God. Further to that, it says that we don't understand the privilege given to us and others when we were honoured with being an image bearer. Now, that doesn't mean that humble people agree with what everyone else is doing, but they respect the person enough to communicate that disagreement well, and if the person chooses to continue in the path they have chosen, they respect their choice. You know, when we try to control people, underpinning that behavior is the belief that either A, my needs and desires are more important than yours, or B, that my way is better than yours. Both of these ideas stem from pride. Now, as believers, we do sort of believe that the way of Jesus is better, but the way of Jesus was not to control those who chose not to walk his way. You know, humble people will respect a person even if they aren't respecting themselves. 
Even if a person is completely debasing themselves in the vilest and most sordid activities and relationships, a humble person will respect that person. Because respect isn't based on what they are doing, it is based on their innate value. It is based on the fact that they are an image bearer. Some of the values we have about sexuality in scripture actually have to do with this. Even if a person is treating their body as though it is worth nothing, that doesn't give me the license to treat their body like it is worth nothing too. The point is a humble person is not selective with who they respect. They don't treat the five-year-old differently than the celebrity because when you value the image-bearing nature we have, you won't compartmentalize or categorize people. Number four, humble people will befriend anyone. This doesn't mean that a humble person will throw caution to the wind when it comes to friendship. It's just that conceptually it would not enter their mind to reject someone because of how it affects their social status. We forget how staggering it was that Jesus chose a tax collector to be in his entourage. If he cared about how people would see him, he would not have done that. For sure, there would have been people, especially Jewish people, who would not have given him the time of day because of who he has associated with. And he would have known it. But he chose whom he chose because he was humble. And the packaging that a person approached him in was inconsequential to their future in Christ. Romans 12, 16 says, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of lower position. The verse actually suggests that it is pride that encourages us to be picky about who we will associate with, whether that be because of their social status, their race, their entertainment value, or their wealth. You name it. Whatever factors that make them a lower standing in this day and age is not a good enough reason to reject them. Humble people don't reject anyone. Now let's just talk about pride and humility when it comes to our relationship with God. How does where we sit on the pride and humility scale impact our approach to God? There are really two ways in which it impacts our approach to God. Firstly, It affects our desire and eagerness to approach God. Pride will cause a person not to seek God and humility will cause a person to run toward God. And I'd say that is because where we find ourselves on the pride and humility continuum could be directly related to the degree of influence we are willing to give God in our lives. Look, there are times when someone who is going through disillusionment might have some struggles with opening scripture and prayer. So I don't think the lack of desire to seek God is always about pride. But there are also times when disillusionment and pride can be conspiring together too. But here's the thing. It is entirely possible for a person to believe in Jesus and yet reject him in every other way. The writers of scripture would probably not have considered that to be faith though. Faith in the scriptures implied that you were also in a trust relationship with God that would have you giving your life over to him. But these days, because of how we have defined believing, as in We can mentally agree with the notion of something, but disconnect this agreement from how we live our lives. In that scenario, it is entirely possible that a believer might open their Bible every day and pray every day, but be completely prideful toward God in how they are doing it. Because pride has this qualitative nature to it. It affects how you do something as much as what you do. 
Humility, on the other hand, will cause a person to seek God with fervency because they recognize that even the breath in our lungs is ultimately facilitated by the creator of this universe. They don't just need God to live through hard times. They know they need him all the time. They don't have their minds so made up about everything that they can't see the mystery and wonder of God and therefore allow themselves to be wowed and wooed again by him. The second way that it affects is our desire and ability to listen to God. There are times when we genuinely don't hear from God. And that to me is usually a sign that either God's focus for me is that I need to rest and heal, or it's that he just wants me to keep doing what I'm doing and allow the guidance from his word to continue to renew my mind and renew my love for him. So in other words, it's not a time for specific direction. It's a time to just go with what you know, love, serve, grow to become more Christ-like. But sometimes the reason we can't hear is because pride has filtered out a lot of what he is trying to say. It's actually really difficult, right? Because I have had people say to me, God doesn't speak to me, Mel, you know, he doesn't speak to me. And I think, well, I think God speaks to everyone. It says in scripture that my sheep know my voice. Yes, it might be in varying degrees and it is unique to each person. So sometimes you've got to work out the specific way he speaks to you. But the verse tells us that he is speaking. It's just that we don't always recognize that voice. The problem is pride will have you putting up walls to God and deciding a matter before he's had a chance to speak to you about it. And when that has happened, any prompting will get overshadowed by what you have already determined. Because we might complain that we don't hear from God, but actually when you're proud, you probably don't really want to hear from God because not hearing gives you license to keep doing what you want. On the other hand, when you notice that you're starting to hear God more, it's probably because your heart is softening. Humility has this way of enabling openness. You start to hear God in the most unusual of ways. You might be in the darkest environment and his light will find you. I was recently watching a movie that had a personality that the Christian world would probably say is really sinful. I was just concentrating on the plot and then I kind of noticed I had this overwhelming sense of brotherly love for this personality. Suddenly I had this prompting of the Holy Spirit, you know, when he kind of speaks into your heart and I heard him say, I love this man. I couldn't believe it. Now I'm aware of the hardship and the darkness in his life. But God wanted me to know how he felt about him, and it wasn't judgment and it wasn't frustration. It was love. Now, I'm still on a journey with humility, but I know people who hear from God like this all the time, and they inspire me to keep growing in humility. So why do we need to talk about all of this? The degree to which humility and pride are talked about in Scripture and the degree to which it is talked about in the Christian world is so out of balance. There is a good chance that instead of doing a billion sermons about anxiety, that someone's freedom might be found in this message. Because I am positive that pride would create stress and tension because it was never the way we were meant to live. We are image bearers of God, not of the enemy. So when the enemy entices us to behave as he would, of course it is going to create inner turmoil. Pride is a sin, which means that by nature, it has a destructive and enslaving influence in our lives. And the scriptures show us that there are great incentives to grow in humility and ugly consequences for pride. 
So let me tell you some of what the scriptures tell us about humility and pride. Firstly, pride. God doesn't like it. This couldn't be clearer. It says in 1 Peter 5 verse 5 that God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Pride guarantees mistakes. Proverbs 16 verse 18 says pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride creates arguments and conflicts. Proverbs 13.10 says, Where there is strife, there is pride, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. Pride will have you embarrassed. Proverbs 11.2 says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. Pride makes you selfish. Philippians 2 verse 3 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. On the other hand, the scriptures also tell us a lot about humility. Humility attracts the following. God's intimate leading. Psalm 25 verse 9 says, He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. Humility ensures God's sustenance. Psalm 147 verse 6 says the Lord sustains the humble but casts the wicked to the ground. God favors the humble. Psalm 149 verse 4 says for the Lord takes delight in his people. He crowns the humble with victory. God honors the humble. Proverbs 15 verse 33. Wisdom's instruction is to fear the Lord and humility comes before honor. And there is a lot more that we can't even cover in this episode. You really need to go and check out your Bible. There's heaps and heaps more. But let's consider all of this in light of the overall theme of this podcast. We know something is missing and we know that what is missing is the depth in our faith. So let's just go a little bit deeper into why this is affecting the depth in our faith. Here it goes. You cannot grow in depth without humility. One of the reasons we grow during hard times is because when we are stripped of everything that we would ordinarily rely on, we become desperate to hear and search out answers that we haven't heard before. We more genuinely seek God because we aren't coping. We become hungry. Pride doesn't help anyone. It is in opposition to the concept of seeking or searching. Pride's not looking for answers because it makes you believe that you already have them. Nobody grows when they stay in a place of pride. When pride tempts you to judge, to stay angry, to stay a victim and blame everyone else, there's no growth from that stance. Blamers don't grow. Blamers generally don't heal either. They just find more people to hold responsible for where they are in life. Blaming and pride might make you feel justified, but it certainly won't make you grow or heal. If you want to have depth in your relationship with God, pride will always be a stumbling block. If we want to experience all that God is capable of doing in our lives, filling our hunger, quenching our thirst, pride will be a limitation. You can't ask God to simultaneously fill your needs whilst believing that you don't really need him. You know, pride is like sealing your coffee lid shut, you know, and like covering that spout bit as well, or like putting like this impenetrable lid on your meal. You know, sometimes I give Leela a container for school and I realize that she can't open it because it's just so tight, right? 
You might have that food and drink in your hand, but it's not going to be consumed or give you any kind of sustenance until you break the seal. Humility is the gateway to all goodness that is available in Christ. Pride is the seal. Now, I suspect that some of you are still not convinced. I just I could just tell when I was preparing this that some of you will still not be convinced because maybe because you haven't really heard about this that much. It's like, you know, not really that big an issue to you. But let me demonstrate with a story of Jesus being tempted in the desert. Now, I would presume that the specific temptations the enemy brought to Jesus were well thought out and possibly the best temptations he had on offer, right? I mean, the greatest person, literally God incarnate, is entering the world and is led into the desert for 40 days to be tempted by the enemy. That's the whole purpose, to be tempted. So he'd be offering him like the best temptations on hand, yeah? Okay, so let me paint a picture. The enemy waits 40 days before he tempts Jesus. The first temptation is simple. He incites Jesus to use his power to shortcut the fast and to fulfill his hunger, right? I mean, there is a little bit more to this and we might unpack this in another episode, but in general, how often has he tempted us all with a shortcut to God's promises? Plenty, hey? Like that's that's kind of a common temptation. All right, the next temptation, the second temptation, the enemy asks him to jump off the highest point of a temple, Right. Now, I've got to be honest with you. I look at that temptation and I'm like, yeah, that was not your finest, Satan. Who is legitimately considering jumping off from a high height other than people who are contemplating a premature end to their lives or thrill seekers? And there's no indication that Jesus falls into either of those categories. So, That should be our first sign that this is not at all about jumping. Look at what the enemy says. If you are the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect you and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. That's in Matthew 4. He's challenging his confidence that the father would save him. Okay, so let's imagine for a moment that Jesus failed the test. Imagine for some ridiculous reason, Jesus buys it and he decides to jump. What is it about this specific temptation that made him do it? He wouldn't have really gained anything. In the first temptation, at least he would have had something to eat. In the last temptation, he would have gained wealth and power and luxury and splendor and everything that you know goes with that. But this temptation offers nothing of that sort. The only thing that Jesus would have gained from this temptation is being able to prove himself, to prove that he was holy because he believed God's word or, and prove that he is the Messiah. That's it. Now, there's a good chance that the enemy was wanting some more confirmation for himself that this was actually the Messiah, but this was a temptation too. So it couldn't have only been that. After all, Like this was his one chance. The whole point of a temptation is to take someone off course. He was never going to have this chance again to tempt the Messiah. So he was throwing his best cards on the table. So what exactly was the enemy trying to appeal to? What kind of person responds to the request to prove themselves? Yeah, I think you're probably getting a pretty good idea right now. Proud people, arrogant people, people who want to display their righteousness. 
You know, my favourite movie of all time is A Few Good Men, hands down. I watch that movie at least once a year, maybe even more than that, and I'm probably going to go watch it after this now because I'm thinking about it. And of course, one of my favourite parts is the climactic scene where Colonel Jessup, played by Jack Nicholson, does this famous line, you've heard it, right? You can't handle the truth. I can't do it very well. I used to think I was really good at voices, but I keep discovering through this podcast I'm really not that great. Anyway, even if you haven't watched the movie, you probably know that line. It's been reused in Simpsons episodes and um, Seinfeld and all sorts of stuff. It's a very famous line. The brilliance about what Tom Cruise's character, Lieutenant Caffey, does in putting Colonel Jessup on the stand is that he realises that Jessup wants to prove that he could order a code that had been banned by the Navy called a Code Red. He believed he was entitled to order an illegal code because he was important and his responsibility of saving lives justified him. He was proud. He couldn't see how Santiago, the murdered Marine, the victim of the Code Red that killed him, he couldn't see that this was precisely the kind of person the Marines were supposed to be protecting. Anyway, some of you not have no idea what I'm talking about, but you need to go watch that movie. And I'm not apologising that you don't understand. You need to go watch that movie. I'm moving on. Proud people have no problem with proving how good, how powerful, how right or how superior they are. Just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They would fast to be seen as righteous. They would pray to be heard. They would give to be deemed noble. This temptation that Satan offered Jesus is very effective with the proud. And it's one of the best temptations that he has to offer them because it works. The proud will live the rest of their lives still trying to prove how good they are to someone who said something to them 20 years ago. Even when it doesn't make sense, even when it doesn't make them happy, this temptation works. But there is something else that we can see in this passage, something that ought to give us hope. We can see how useless this temptation is for the humble. Here's the thing, if Jesus needed to genuinely jump off a building throughout the course of his ministry, then God would have protected him. But he didn't really need to do that in this instance, and he therefore knew that were he to do it, he would only be doing it to prove something to the enemy that he didn't need to prove. He didn't need to test God, and he didn't need to prove his worthiness. He already knew what God would do if he needed that kind of help. The enemy's hands are pretty tied when it comes to the humble. He actually doesn't really know what to do with them because his choicest temptations are really not that effective with them. Imagine the enemy who is all proud, trying to work out how to appeal to a completely humble person. It's so out of his realm of comprehension. But we aren't all entirely humble, are we? We do get proud. And the more we crucify this nature and pursue a life of humility, the less the enemy has to offer and the less enticing his offers look. I want to give you one final thought before we close this episode up. Jesus exemplifies humility in full perfection. His earthly life began with humility. He crossed over the realms when he didn't really need to, not, certainly not for himself. Then he becomes a baby reliant on a human mother to sustain and care for him. 
He grows up in an ordinary family amidst an ordinary community around people who will one day struggle to comprehend that this young man who at one time needed someone to break his bread for him or cut his meat could be special, let alone the Messiah. He takes on the job of a carpenter, not a professor, not a theologian, and much to the dismay of the Jewish leaders at the time, not even as a military leader. He comes from the back end of the city where nobody who is going anywhere in life would go. He humbly leads 12 people and a few extras for three years until he dies gruesomely on a cross, the Lamb of God. This act of crucifixion would have demonstrated to the people of his day a lack of power rather than being all-powerful. He rises again but doesn't go to the religious leaders and rub it in their face. He meets two women in a garden and goes to Galilee to see the disciples. Everything about Jesus' life was humble. We often gravitate toward pride because it makes us feel powerful. But Jesus' life demonstrates something so profound, something so precious. In God's kingdom, humility is powerful. Not because it can force or demand or coerce or enslave. Humility is powerful because it opens doors that couldn't be opened before to healing, to kindness, to love. It opens doors for God to keep having an influence on this world through his people. Yeah, it is a different kind of power. It's like the power of a wind that can smooth a rough surface over time or a gentle stream that causes flowers and fruits to grow around its edges and provide nourishment for generations. Humility is powerful and it is the language of God to this world. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Pink Elephant. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, or you can check out my resources on my website, meljsayward.com.